0: If you have your Bibles, you can turn to Luke chapter 4. Luke 4. We're going to be looking at a portion of a section which actually travels or continues from verse 14 all the way through 30. And there is so much here, and I'm going to try and get it in in a, a couple sermons. But uh, So we're just going to kind of hack it off at verse 21 and uh, kind of deal with some of the things we can learn from Jesus from that first part, and then we'll kind of finish up the last half in a couple weeks. But as we return to Luke this morning, uh, this is the first time... Jesus has been to his hometown after starting his ministry to teach. And this is what the beginning of what is often referred to by scholars as his Galilean ministry, which Luke records all the way through chapter nine. And before we look at the text, there is something that you need to understand, and that is Luke has purposely left out some important information about Jesus and and, uh, you know, all the gospel writers don't say everything. That's why we have four gospels. But for some reason, Luke, who tends to be very detailed, decides to leave out everything that happened after Jesus's temptation, but before his Galilean ministry. But in order to understand our text it's very helpful to understand what happened in that uh, time interval and so what we are going to do is we are going to uh, look at the uh, just survey some of the texts which tell us what has gone on so that when we look at our text we'll be able to understand why the people say and do the things that they do yeah if you look at verse 23 of Luke 4, you'll see that later on in the text, which we'll get to in a couple of weeks, uh, Jesus says, no doubt you will quote this proverb to me, physician, heal yourself. Whatever we heard was done in Capernaum, do here in your hometown as well. Well, Capernaum was a small town to the west of the Sea of Galilee. So Luke alludes to Jesus doing previous ministry, but he just doesn't say anything about it. But just to give you a survey, in Matthew 4.11, it tells us right after Jesus was tempted... God sent angels to minister to him and to strengthen him. And after he was strengthened, according to John chapter 1, verse 29 through 34, uh, Jesus uh, went down and visited John the Baptist. John the Baptist, when he saw Jesus, said that famous phrase, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, and I am unfit to tie his sandals, and this is the Son of God. Of course, John was there. And everybody was standing there as John was ministering. And so everybody heard John say, Jesus is the son of God, the lamb who takes away the sin of the world. And so that must have shocked people. And those people then, of course, talked to other people and rumors began to spread that, you know, this guy down there in the Jordan, John the Baptist, just said that this other guy is the Messiah, the son of God. Later on in John chapter one verses thirty-five through fifty-one, uh, Jesus has stayed a couple days with John the Baptist with uh, his disciples, and and one of uh, two disciples follow him. One of them we know about, which is Andrew. Andrew, of course, is the brother of Simon, or Simon Peter. And later on, Andrew then introduces his brother Simon to Jesus, and Jesus gives him the name Peter, and then he becomes mostly known as Peter or Simon Peter. Paul calls him Cephas. The next day after that, Jesus calls Philip and Nathanael. Nathanael is the one who in John one forty six, said, Can anything good come from Nazareth? Well, he meets Jesus. Jesus talks to him, says, I saw you, um, while you were under the tree. And Nathaniel is instantly convinced that Jesus is the son of God, the king of Israel. Jesus then proceeds to the wedding feast at Cana, uh, Canaan. And it is there he does this incredible miracle. And according to John chapter two, verses one through 11, he turns about a hundred and twenty gallons of water into wine. From there, Jesus travels to Capernaum, this town just to the west of, of um, the Sea of Galilee, where uh, Luke references this in verse 23 of chapter 4. And it is there that Jesus is met by his family, spends a few days with his family. According to John two thirteen through 22, Jesus then travels from Capernaum, to Jerusalem to celebrate the first of four Passovers mentioned in the Gospels. This is one of the reasons we know that Jesus' ministry was three years long, is that it records four different Passovers. One at the very beginning of his ministry, two in the middle, and of course one at the end where he dies. So we know that there's a three-year period that he um, ministered. While celebrating the Passover in Jerusalem, uh, he does several things like drive the money changers out from the temple for the first time. And it was there that he looked at them and said, destroy this temple. And in three days, I will raise it up. Of course, his false accusers at his uh, trial at the end of his life uh, used this against him. And it's interesting because Jesus didn't say, I will destroy this temple and build it up. He said, you do it and I will raise it up. Yet they accused him of wanting to destroy the temple. According to John 2, 30, 23 through 25, Jesus started to perform miracles. Some were believing in him, but um, most who were believing in him uh, weren't believing with saving faith. They were just believing that he was doing things from God. It was also at this time that a Pharisee named Nicodemus came to Jesus at night, having heard and seen some of the miracles that Jesus was doing, knowing that um, Jesus uh, couldn't have done this any other way than from God. He came and said, we know that you are from God, a Pharisee speaking for the Pharisees. And of course, Jesus then talks to him about being born again. And if he isn't born again, he can't enter the kingdom of heaven. From there, Jesus then leaves again for Judea, the area where John is baptizing people. And he and his disciples go there and start baptizing people. And more people start coming to Jesus than go to John. As a matter of fact, while there, Jesus um, does so much baptizing that the Pharisees begin to get irritated. Jesus then heads off uh, towards Galilee and goes through Samaria. It was there in Samaria that he stopped at Jacob's well and had the famous conversation with the woman at the well. And talked to her, uh, witnessed to her about uh, him being the Messiah. And then had that great discussion about what true worship was. Then Jesus went into one of the towns there and he preached the gospel and many became convinced that he was quote in their words the savior of the world jesus then went to galilee which is where our text begins in luke 414 and john 445 says this so when he came to galilee the galileans received him listen to this having seen all the things that He did in Jerusalem at the feast for they themselves went to the feast. Now, this is important. Jesus is going around in the the wilderness, in Samaria, in the area around Jerusalem. He's preaching, teaching, doing miracles, and everybody's hearing about it. And some people from his own hometown, because all faithful Jewish men, a lot of times would take their families down and celebrate the Passover in Jerusalem. The men had to, the women were optional, but a lot of them went. So there were a lot of people from Jesus' hometown who saw him do these incredible things. And we know that some of them saw what he did at Capernaum as well. Maybe some of them attended the feast, the wedding feast at Canaan. Uh, Surely his mother was there. And so probably other neighbors were there because it was probably a relative. And so all of this lets us know that they are thoroughly um, uh, saturated with at least information that Jesus has been doing all kinds of neat things. And that helps us understand our text better. So if you have your Bible, look at Luke chapter 4, verse 14, and follow along as I read down through 21. And Jesus returned to Galilee in the power of the Spirit, and news about him spread through all the surrounding district. And he began teaching in their synagogue and was praised by all. And he came to Nazareth, where he'd been brought up, and as was his custom, he entered the synagogue on the Sabbath and stood up to read. The book of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him and he opened the book and found the place where it was written. The spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set free those who are oppressed and to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord. And he closed the book gave it back to the attendant and sat down and the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Now from Luke 4, 14 through 21, I want you to learn four important truths modeled by Jesus or learned from his ministry that you need to apply to your life. And the first is this. You must minister in the power of the Holy Spirit like Jesus. Look at verse 14. The text says, Jesus returned to Galilee in the power of the Spirit. And we've seen this all along, haven't we? The Holy Spirit came upon him after, at his baptism, according to Luke 3.22. If you look at Luke one, right before his temptation, it says he was full of the Holy Spirit. And so Jesus is working and ministering with the Holy Spirit's aid, the Holy Spirit's power. And this is one of the axes that Luke likes to grind on. He is a great fan of the Holy Spirit, and he wants all of us to know that the only ministry which ever gives glory to God is ministry which is done in the power of the Holy Spirit. And he also wants to make... This statement, these two primary statements first is Jesus was the anointed one, the one who was anointed with the Holy Spirit. We don't have time to go into this morning, but if you look at Luke or not Luke, Isaiah 11, you will see that in Isaiah 11, it prophesies of the Messiah as one who would have the sevenfold ministry of the spirit upon him. You can read it sometime. Isaiah 11, one through five. And then Later on, as Isaiah gives a series of what are called the servant songs that prophesied about the Messiah to come, uh, in chapter 42, verse one, he makes a clear statement that the Messiah would be anointed with the Spirit of the Lord. You know, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me, is what that Psalm uh, or that little uh, statement uh, starts off with in Isaiah 42. Secondly, Luke wants all of us to know that this ministry which god calls us to is only a ministry to be done in the power of the holy spirit you have to do it in the power of the spirit so those are the two primary reasons i think that that uh, luke is trying to emphasize jesus being in the power of the spirit it's kind of like what Zechariah said you remember Zechariah 4 6 when he said to the people of israel who are trying to rebuild the temple and trying to overcome obstacles listen it's not by strength It's not by might, but it's by what? It's by my spirit, says the Lord. And that's how it's always to be. It doesn't matter whether you're doing a building project. It doesn't matter whether you're mowing the lawn. It doesn't matter whether you're sharing the gospel with somebody. You are to always be living in the power of the Holy Spirit. And that is why Peter, when you go through the book of Acts, talks about Peter and Stephen and Barnabas and Paul, all ministering in the power of the Holy Spirit. And that is the same thing we need to do, too. We need to follow Jesus' example in this area. Now, we have covered this before, but it's so important. And I find a lot of times people who have problems don't understand this. And I think it's because our brains are leaky. I don't know. Um, But we forget. We forget this. This is such a fundamental thing. You need to walk in the power of the Spirit or be filled with the Spirit or or have um, God's Spirit working in your life. And we know from what the Bible says that we have all been baptized by one Spirit into one body according to 1 Corinthians 12, 13. That the Holy Spirit is in us. We know from texts like Ephesians four thirty that we are sealed with the Holy Spirit until the day of redemption. The Holy Spirit's never going to leave you. We also know that... According to Romans 8, 9, that if you don't have the Holy Spirit within you, you don't belong to Christ. You aren't a Christian. So if you're a Christian and if you're saved, you have the Holy Spirit and the Holy Spirit never leaves you. Okay, that is, I think most people have that part down. The, what people don't have down is this. They don't understand that just because you have the Holy Spirit in you, that doesn't mean you're filled with the Spirit, led by the Spirit, walking by the Spirit. Those are things that you must choose to do. God commands you to do those things, which means it's something you can either do or not do. The question is, How do you know? How do you know whether you're walking by the Spirit or how do you know whether you're not walking by the Spirit and walking in the flesh? This is the million-dollar question. You see, the Holy Spirit is in your life. You've got this power. It's kind of like the engine in a car. There are a bunch of cars out there in the parking lot. Those cars have engines in them. But how strange it would be if we all left today, got in our cars, and sat there. And it's warm outside, so we're sweltering with the fever heat of summer, and we're just sitting there, not going anywhere. Why? Well, we tried to roll down the windows, but the windows aren't working. We pressed on the pedal, but nothing happened. There's no power. And this is how a lot of Christians live their life. No power. And it's not because... They don't have it available. It's because they don't understand how to be led, filled, walking in the spirit. And it's really very simple. If you want to have God's spirit working in your life, if you want to have God's spirit empowering you, energizing you, sanctifying you, making you what God wants you to be every minute of every day. These are the two things that have to be true of your life. One, you have to have your sins confessed. Two, you have to be obeying God's word. And that's it. That's pretty simple, isn't it? That is very simple. But see, this is the problem. You know, some some couple or something, they get angry at each other. And then what happens is, is, is they kind of get nasty. And when they start acting carnally, they turn off the power. And they don't confess it to God. They don't confess it to each other. And they've got the switch turned off. They may go to Sunday school. They may try reading their Bible. They may try pray, praying. But God's spirit isn't working in them. Why? Because they have unconfessed sin in their heart. The power is turned off. And so what must be done is... According to 1 John 1, 9, we confess our sins. He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. You can't be any more right with God than cleansed from all unrighteousness. You know, God never leaves us. We leave God. It's not that God's going to force us to obey. It's that he gives us desires to obey. He gives us the ability to obey. He tells us how to obey But we have to submit to him. He gives us the resources by his grace, and we must put them into effect by submitting to his word. And whenever you sin, you have to confess it to God, which includes repentance, which means turning away from it. And if you've offended somebody else, asking forgiveness or making restitution or whatever, And once you have your sins confessed, once you have repented, turned away from them, and you're now walking according to God's word, the spirit's working in your life. Now, do you start glowing? No. Um, Do you have the little halo that appears? No. No. It's just the fact because that's what the word of God says. The key is this. Don't live with unconfessed sin in your life. Don't try and be, you know, the 95% right with God, Christian, because you are the hundred percent wrong with God, Christian, either deal with your sin and walk in the spirit or don't call yourself a Christian because Christians are those who like Jesus walk and live in the power of the Holy spirit. So Jesus shows up in Galilee. He's in the power of the Holy spirit. The middle of ver- or the end of verse 14 says, the news about him spread through all the surrounding district, and we know why, because of all the things that have happened previous. And it's kind of fun, isn't it, when you have somebody from your hometown that's famous. I mean, it's fun to have somebody from your state that's famous if you're from Idaho. <laughs> I remember when there was the ice skater from Peekaboo, Idaho. Man, I love that. You know, I, I thought that was great. Somebody from Peekaboo, and it, you know, and if you think what's Peekaboo, Idaho? Well, I'm telling you, it's the town where you turn off to go to Silver Creek, <laughs> which is the rated the number one trout stream in the world. Then I would go there. And Peekaboo is like three buildings on a road. There's nothing there. I didn't know there was, you know, they didn't have any women there. It's so small, you know, population 15. And here's this Olympic skater from Peekaboo. It was great. And you know what? Nazareth was that kind of place from Nazareth. Does any good thing come from Nazareth? And all of a sudden, everybody hears that this Jesus, that's the guy who fixed my roof. <laughs> you see, you see how hard that is to believe that. Yeah, yeah. He and his dad, you know, they were the ones who built my barn. Yeah, you know, he built the little shed on top of my well. And see, that's what's going through their mind, and they're hearing it. And he did what at Jerusalem? What did he do at Capernaum? What did he do at the wedding feast at Canaan? And what did John the Baptist say? He was the son of God? And so, man, they are primed. They are primed to hear from Jesus. And that leads us to our second point. Jesus also is an example of teaching and preaching the word of God. Look at verse 15. Verse 15 says he began teaching in their synagogues. If you look also at verse, what is it, uh, 32 of chapter 4, it says they were amazed at his teaching. Jesus had a teaching ministry, but not only that, look at verses 16 and 17 it says, and he came to Nazareth where he had been brought up. And as it was his custom, he entered the synagogue on the Sabbath and stood up to read. And the book of the prophet of Isaiah was handed to him and he opened the book and found the place where it was written. Now just stop there. This is the standard uh, format in the synagogue. There usually be three readings, one from the law, one from the writings, uh, Psalms, Proverbs, and one from the prophets. And so they thought, you know, Jesus is getting a little notoriety here. Let's, uh, you know, let's give him, the prophetic portion to read and expound upon, and of course, in that um, culture in that time, the standard thing was is the teacher would stand up and he would read, and then he would sit down to explain, and that was the standard thing. The text says he found the place he wanted to teach on in the book of Isaiah. The attendant, which was often a paid person, came, handed him um, the book of Isaiah, and this is what you need to understand is that, you know, when we talk of the book of Isaiah, don't think about this. Think about, you know, two rolling pins with a scroll wrapped around each of them. That's what it was. It was two round, like, rolling pin things, and they would roll them this way or that way, and the writing would be on the one side, and you would find the place. There were no chapters. There were no verse references. So Jesus didn't say, you know, turn to, you know, Isaiah, whatever. He, he sat down, and he had this big scroll, and Isaiah is a big scroll, I mean, it's a big book, 66 chapters. So it's a big book. And so he's rolling, 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 scanning, looking over there, reading, reading, trying to find the the place, this messianic text. And everybody's watching him. They're wondering, I wonder where he's going to read from. I wonder who he's going to talk about. And he goes right to this messianic text, a text that describes the Messiah's ministry. And this is what he reads. Look at Luke 4, 18. The spirit of the Lord is upon me because he anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set free those who are oppressed, to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord. Now, notice in the text there, he the spirit of the Lord is upon me. He anointed me to preach the gospel. He sent me to proclaim release heavy emphasis on me. So Jesus reads this messianic proverb or passage that is coming from the perspective of the Messiah himself. God has sent me. He reads that passage. Now there is a lot here, but I just want you to note notice the emphasis here on one aspect and that is Jesus came to teach and preach and proclaim and evangelize. Jesus was anointed, the text says, when it says the Spirit of the Lord is upon me because, the because tells us the reason why he was anointed, and it was to preach the gospel to the poor. Secondly, to, he was sent to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind and to proclaim the favorable year of our Lord. That's why he came. And one of Jesus' primary ministry functions was teaching, preaching, proclaiming, and evangelizing. When you look at the text, look at uh, uh, verses 43 through 44. And this text here shows us the very resolve Jesus had in preaching. But he said to them, I must preach the kingdom of God to other cities also, for I was sent... For this purpose, you want to know why Jesus was sent to preach, to preach. And verse 44 says, so he kept on preaching. Why? Because that's why he was sent. And if you didn't understand it from Jesus's lips, then understand it from Luke's. Look at verse one of chapter five. Now it happened while the crowd was pressing around him and listening to the word of God. That was the content of his preaching. The word of God. So that was one of Jesus' primary reasons for coming and living on earth, to preach, to teach the word of God. Now, the word teach is a different word than than preach. They, they aren't the same. Teaching has to do with dialoguing. That is, asking and answering questions. For instance, if you look back at Luke 2, 46, when Jesus' parents had left him, By accident in Jerusalem, they find him sitting in the midst of the teachers, the text says, both listening to them and asking them questions. Now, how could he do that? Because that's what teaching is. The teacher explains something, asks a question, gets an answer from the students. The students ask questions. The teacher answers back. It's dialogue. That's what teaching is all about. It's not the same as preaching. All preaching has some similarities to teaching, but it's not the same. The next word used in the text in verse 18 is he anointed me to preach. This is the Greek word, euangelizo, the word we get evangelized from. And in the New Testament, it's always used in relationship to proclaiming or preaching the good news of the gospel. And of course, that's exactly what the text says. He has anointed me to preach the gospel, the good news and, of course, we know that as Jesus' death, burial, resurrection, repentance and faith in Jesus as Savior and Lord and how to receive God's grace um, through the preaching of the word and through believing with faith. The other word used in verses eight or 18 and 19 translated proclaim in the New American Standard is the Greek word kariso, which describes a certain process the noun form is uh uh the carex a preacher a carex and and that person is a whole different kind of messenger he's not just the person who comes and says hey you know you want to go to a concert tonight or whatever this person is an authoritative proclaimer a bold proclaimer and there's a reason in extra biblical usage, it was used, for instance, as a king. If you were a king and uh, you wanted your subjects to know something, you would send this, this, this character, this uh, preacher. And he would go and proclaim or herald, thus says the king. And he would then announce the king's will for the people. The people then were expected to do what the king said. And that is exactly how preaching this word is used in the Bible. That is why Paul, for instance, in Titus 2 15, um, the verse right after what was read this morning, Paul says to Titus, these things speak, exhort and reprove with all authority and let no one disregard you. That's what preaching is. Reproving, teaching, exhorting, speaking with all authority. That's a command. So if you're a preacher and you don't do that, you're sinning. And then he adds on and let no one disregard you, which means. Don't let anybody walk around you or sidestep you or try to get out of the message. You make sure you preach in such a way that every single person knows what God wants them to do. And don't let anybody escape. No captives. Everybody has to understand the will of the king who has sent you to preach. And today we have such a pathetic group of preachers who have no idea about this. They have no idea what preaching is. They think preaching is just entertaining people, telling them what they want to hear, tickling their ears, making them feel good, appealing to the masses. They're nothing more than spineless, powerless, jellyfish, ear-tickling preachers. They're just to make their people feel good so when they leave they go, Oh, wasn't that nice? That is not preaching. God the king gets to tell his character what to say. And when the king tells you what to say, you don't get to change the message. And we would never even dare thinking of doing that for an earthly king. Some earthly king says, go tell the people to do this. And then the, 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 the herald goes out there and says, oh yeah, well, I'll just change what he said. It'd be, it'd be off with your head. It'd be off with your head. You don't preach your own words. You don't change the words of the king. You don't tell the people what they want to hear. They don't even know what they need to hear. You tell them what God says they need to hear. And that's what a preacher is. And that's what Jesus did. And guess what? You're to do all of these things. You are to evangelize, right? Right. Teach, preach, proclaim. And I know that, you know, you might not be up here behind the pulpit. You might not have the gift of teaching. And you might not ever be at a, you know, standing in front of a group of people. But all of us are are called to tell people, right, about what we know from the Scriptures. All of us are called to evangelize the lost, right? All of us are called to speak the truth with one another, to do it unashamedly, with boldness. And with authority that comes from the word of God, if the word of God says this is wrong, this behavior is wicked. Then if you're talking with somebody, you can say with boldness and clarity, this is wrong. It's wicked because the word of God says so. Period. And many, though, don't want to hear this because they don't even know what preaching is. They think church is about them rather than about God and his glory. They think church is a place where they kind of go get pumped up for another week instead of God getting worshiped and praised and having a voice. That's what preaching is. And to many, strong, authoritative preaching comes off as arrogant and know-it-all and not flexible, divisive, combative, intolerant. That's how it comes off to most people. They, they'll come, you go to a fluffy church and you come here and they leave going, man, you are, you're mean. <laughs> well, I have news for you. We're all supposed to be mean. If meanness is speaking the truth with confidence and boldness and authority, we all have to do it. You know, all of us have these little atmospheres where we can share the truth, right? You're a mother. What are you going to do? You're going to preach at your kids. You're going to teach your kids. You're going to ask them questions. You're a father talking to your son. What do you do? You dialogue with them. You talk with them. You teach them. You tell them boldly. You're sharing with your neighbor. And the neighbor says, well, you know, I don't know if, you know, you know, the homosexuality is, you know, all that bad. And what do you say? No, it is bad. I know it's becoming popular in our society. I know a lot of people are saying it's okay. But God says, and then you tell them with all authority, the authority that comes from the word of God. Turn to Romans chapter 10, Romans 10. This is a well-known text to many of us, but it's good to remind ourselves of Romans 10. In this, the beginning of the chapter, Paul is just grieving because he's, he's got all these Israelites on his mind and they've rejected Christ and he wants to see him saved and he can't save them and it's just his heart desires for their salvation and he's just grieving. And look at verse 8. He begins to explain how someone becomes a Christian. He says, But what does it say? That's the scripture. The word is near you, in your mouth, in your heart. That is the word of faith which we are preaching. That if you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart a person believes, resulting in righteousness, and with the mouth he confesses, resulting in salvation. Paul says, you know, that's how it happens. That's what needs to happen. Someone needs to have the word, know the word, speak the word. People need to believe the word and be saved by it and confess it. Look down at verse 14. But here's his problem. He's got all these Jews on his heart, and he wants to see him come to salvation. He says, "How then will they call on him whom they have not believed?" And the implied answer is, "They won't." How will they believe in him whom they have not heard? The implied answer is, "They won't." And how would they hear without a preacher? They, they can't. How will they preach unless they're sent? Never happen. And then he quotes. The theme of our missions conference last year was amazing. I don't know how he got this. How beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news of good things. And guess who those feet are? They're your feet. They're my feet. They're everybody's feet who names the name of Christ. Your feet. You have to tell people about Jesus. That's what it means to be a Christian. In Luke 9, 26, Jesus, talking about what it means to be a disciple, says, quote, for whoever is ashamed of me, and my words, the Son of Man will be ashamed of him when he comes in his glory and the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. That's why Paul told Timothy in 2 Timothy 1, 8, do not be ashamed of the gospel. Why? Because it's easy to be ashamed, isn't it? I mean, you've got this perfect... Spike opportunity where somebody just pops it right over there and man, you can just nail that thing. Talk to the gospel. Talk the gospel right to them. Tell them about Jesus. Tell them why, you know, your life's different or your children are the way they are or whatever and you just let her drop. Oh, uh, why? Cause you're shamed. You're ashamed. And we constantly have to fight against that. We have to be bold. You know what amazes me is when you read Paul in places like Ephesians six eighteen, where he says, or six nineteen, I think, where he says, "Pray for me that I may have boldness." Like what? I mean, aren't you the guy that you know went through all of that suffering and pain and torment and whatever, and then kept going? Aren't you the guy that they stoned? And It's amazing, that place in Acts where he's stoned. They think he's dead. He gets up and goes back into the city and preaches again. You want boldness? Oh, man, what do I need? You know, I need a whole new me. And you know what? God will give you that boldness. You need to pray for it, and you need to take the opportunity and just throw yourself out there and evangelizing, teaching, proclamation, abandon, and just let god do what he's going to do if you're worried about being imperfect in your presentation well you will be we all are but you know what it's not the man who who sows or waters but it's god who causes growth And you need to be the one who faithfully proclaims the message. Now, if you're sitting out there and all of this I'm saying about walking in the Spirit, about being filled with the Spirit, about confessing your sins, about all of this stuff, and you're thinking to yourself, Jack, I don't know any about this. This is not my life. When I look at my life, all I see is sin. All I see is rebellion. All I see is a person who doesn't even know anything about walking in the Spirit. I don't ever share my faith. I don't ever talk to anybody about the Bible, about Jesus. I am just a Christian in name only. And then the next two points are for you. It could be that you don't know Jesus. And so your life doesn't show any fruit. I mean, let me ask you this. You you buy a house or something or somebody says, hey, come look at my apple tree. You look at the tree. And it's the middle of summer. It doesn't have any leaves on it. You grab one of the branches and it's all dry and brittle. The brat, the bark is all twisted and cracked and flaking off and there's termites crawling in and out of it. What do you know about the tree? It's dead. It is a dead tree. Well, if you look at your life, then there's no leaves. There's, there's no desire to share the gospel. There's no desire to live for God. There's no desire to tell other people about God's truth and God's word. That there's no confession of sin. There's no desire to be walking in the spirit. Tree is dead. Just admit it. And then take the solution. And the first part of the solution is realizing you're dead. Realizing your spiritual condition before God. Notice again in verse 18 and 19, looking at a whole different theme here, is that the Spirit of the Lord came upon the Messiah to preach the gospel to what kind of people? Poor people. To proclaim release to captives. A covering of sight to the blind. To set free those who are oppressed. Now, you can take these literally, poor financially, captives in jail somewhere blind, can't see light with your physical eyes, oppressed, you know, under Roman domination, but that's not what it's talking about. It's talking about spiritual poverty, like in the Sermon on the Mount, blessed, are the poor in spirit. Those who are captive spiritually, held captive by Satan to do his will. Those who are blinded by the God of this world and cannot see the truth because they're spiritually dead. Those who are oppressed by the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes, and the boastful pride of life. We're talking about people who are wretched and blind and naked and bare before God, that they see their utter spiritual poverty and they realize, I need a Savior that is the kind of person that Jesus came to preach to we all know the phrase he did not come to call what the righteous but sinners to repentance and until you get to the place where you realize that you are a sinner you will never be what God wants you to be you will never be saved and you got to come to the place where you realize I am a spiritual zero. I don't love God. I haven't walked with God. I've sinned against God. I've rebelled against God. He did, his judgment is upon me, and I deserve it. And I can't do anything to save myself. I can only trust in Jesus and receive what Jesus did. And if you're out there thinking, well, Jack, you know, I can't see myself like that. I'm, I'm, a, I'm a pretty good guy. I've never murdered anybody. Well, have you ever been angry with anybody? You're a murderer. You ever stolen anything? Even a paper, paper clip? Thief. You know, I mean, hey, you know, how good are you? You ever put anything before God? You're an idolater. I mean, how good are you? Well, you may be better than the guy next to you or the guy down the street or the people you read about in the paper, but are you as good as God not even close you don't have to answer i know the answer you're not and that is why you must get to the place in your life where you're broken before god the psalmist says this in psalm 34 18 the lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves those who are crushed in spirit are you crushed in spirit are you brokenhearted you remember what david said and Psalm fifty one seventeen, the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and a contrite spirit, O Lord, you will not despise. Isaiah takes up the same theme in Isaiah sixty six two, when he says, But to this one will I look, to him who is humble and contrite of spirit and who trembles at my word. Are you humble? Are you contrite in spirit? Are you broken? Are you crushed? Do you realize the ruin of your soul? Have you ever been there? If you haven't, you haven't ever been to salvation because you that's the only way to get there. If you're thinking you're pretty good, you're not savable. You're like the rich rung ruler who thought he kept everything, all the law, all growing up. He went away empty handed, unsaved. Because he thought he was righteous before God. And so you must get to the place where you realize you're a spiritual beggar, saturated in sin, unable to save yourself. And finally, look at verses 20 and 21. And we're going to get more into this later. This is incredible. He gets the scroll. He whittles all the way down to the very end of Isaiah. Everybody's looking at him all through their mind or I heard he did miracles. I saw him do this. He'd said this. I saw him get all mad at the money changers and, you know, all the people coming to him and the crowds and they're listening and they're wondering what he's going to say now after he reads the scripture. And he closed the book, gave it to the attendant and sat down and the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them. And I'm telling you, this must have made their jaws hit the ground with a thud. Today, this scripture, this messianic text about the Messiah preaching the good news is right now being fulfilled in your hearing. Whoa. And probably everyone there was going, What? What? I mean, that just probably just just totally took them by surprise. What are you saying? The point is this. Jesus is the Messiah. And he's the only one who can save you. You have to realize you're a sinner and you have to realize you're a savior and have to realize he's the only one. He's the way, the truth, and the life. And no one comes to the Father but through him. If you look at your life and you see that you're just a dead tree with no leaves, they're kind of like Aaron's staff, dry, brittle, hard. And you want to turn green and blossom and produce fruits. You need Jesus. He's the only one who can save you. You need to receive him as your savior. You need to repent of your sins and you need to ask God to make you a new creature and he'll do it. So what have we learned here today? You're going to leave here. You're going to walk out these doors and everybody's going to remind themselves over and over again, every time they sin all week long, every day that I need to be walking in the power of the Holy Spirit. And so I'm going to make sure I keep my sins confessed And I keep walking according to obedience to the God's word. Secondly, if you're a believer, you're going to remind yourself, you know what? I need to teach God's word to my children, my neighbors, whoever I can, people in the foyer, whatever. I need to evangelize the lost. I need to proclaim God's word with boldness and authority because God has boldness and authority built into his word. That's what you need to do if you're a believer. If you're not a believer, today's the day of salvation. You need to realize the depth of your depravity, your spiritual bankruptcy, and realize Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. And you can't get to heaven any other way but through him. You need to cry out to God. You need to beg God to save you and change you. And he will. Nothing in my hand I bring. Simply to the cross I cling. Naked come to thee for dress. Helpless look to thee for grace. Foul I to the fountain fly, wash me, Savior, or I die. rock of ages cleft for me, let me hide thyself in thee. And That has to be your prayer. And if it's not, you die. Let's pray. Father, we are so grateful just for what we've learned from this wonderful text. It's going to be so good to come back and learn some more as we find out how the people reacted to christ telling them that he was the messiah the anointed one who came to preach to wretched sinners father we thank you for the repentance that you have granted so many in this room repentance leading to the knowledge of the truth to salvation and life transformation we know that it is a gift of your grace father if there are those here who realize that they are spiritually dead that they have no life in them. Father, I pray that you would save them, that you would grant them your grace and mercy, humble their hearts, help them to receive the free gift of salvation by your grace through the person of Jesus Christ, all for your glory and their blessing. I pray this in Christ's name. Amen.